Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. It was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have enough bread, enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has gotten him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, he has who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The Gospel of the Lord.
I speak to you in the name of God, who was and is and is to come. Amen. So yesterday, my son got to see a fire truck up close for the first time. My wife Amanda, my parents and I took Sam to a family fun day at the Bowie Bay Sox Stadium. And in the parking lot, there were all kinds of county vehicles that kids could come up and explore. And when Sam saw the fire truck, he like made a beeline for it. Little excited grunts and squeals kind of narrating his journey as he made his way along the sidewalk. And when he first got up there, he started pointing at and kind of touching the wheels. And then he moved around to the back and was touching the hoses. And he was mesmerized by the freshly washed uh, headlights and the shiny grill. Every inch of this truck seemed to be intriguing to him. And then later that day, once we were home, um, I looked over and there sat Sam in our living room, studying and pushing the buttons on an old remote with the same level of like fascination and intrigue and delight as he had taken in this massive, shiny, bright fire truck earlier in the day. I'm continually amazed by his attention to details that I often don't notice, and just the delight he takes in everyday objects. Well, today I'd say we have a fire truck sized parable among us. It's a big one, the prodigal son. I think it would easily make a lot of people's like top 10 lists of the best, um, you know, Bible lessons. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes though, when I hear this story or other ones that, you know, I kind of know that I'm pretty familiar with, it starts to sound kind of like that story my uncle tells all the time that I like already know where it's going. And so I mentally kind of check out, maybe start checking my phone. And it's like, yeah, you know, I know how this goes. Father has two sons, younger one blows all his money, has to hang out with pigs. He comes back to himself, goes home. Dad runs out to meet him while he's still far off. The son apologizes, all is forgiven. Dad throws this great party. Older son gets upset. I'm the good one. Why haven't you done something like this for me? Then we, the reader, realize, ah, the father is God, and he loves both sons. Translate that to God loves us, God forgives us, God will always welcome us home. Yay, we got it. And I think that there is a lot of power in that, especially that idea of God always being there to welcome us home. But those details that I just kind of ad-libbed. Is that, is that really what happened? Do we have this story down? Or might we take a cue from the toddlers among us and hold it up for a little bit of a closer look? Amy Jill Levine is a Jewish New Testament scholar, and she writes, if the interpretation of a parable does not raise for us more questions, if it does not open us up to more conversation, if it creates a neat and tidy picture, we need to go back and read it again. Because parables, they invite us to walk around in them and not just notice the big kind of shiny flashing lights. And the point when we encounter them, it's not so much to figure them out or like solve a puzzle or a riddle, but it's to let them challenge us and maybe even amuse us with the ways that they lay the everyday alongside something that's pretty absurd. So I wonder what questions this parable raises for you. 
and I'll share just a few that I've been sitting with lately. Did the younger son really fully repent? Do we actually hear the father forgive him? What happens at the end? Does the older brother go in and join the party? What about the, the next day, the morning after, or a few months from then? What is the relationship like between the three of these guys? Why did Jesus tell this parable in the first place? Well, some of those we're just left to wonder about, but I do want to spend a little bit of time with that last question. What prompts Jesus to tell this story? If you look back at the opening verses of the reading, it says, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. So it's clear that the religious leaders are pretty peeved at the company that Jesus is keeping those who have dedicated their lives to keeping God's laws are upset that rule breakers, like tax collectors who are out there exploiting people for the sake of the Roman Empire, and sinners who are living outside the bounds of God's law, they're upset that they're the ones who are coming near and are becoming some of the people that Jesus is spending the most time with. Remembering this context, it might help us locate the center of gravity that this particular parable intended. Most of the time when I've heard um, interpretations of this parable, the focus is usually on that younger son and his relationship with the father. He's the prodigal, wasteful, and imprudent one. But who do the grumbling religious leaders that prompt this parable sound more like? I think they're more in line with the older brother, refusing to go into the party and celebrate the return of the sibling. This isn't fair. That seems to be a pretty good summary of both what the brother's saying, but also the religious authorities around Jesus. We're the ones trying to be good here and do what God the Father says, so why waste your time or show mercy to those who were just now showing up and showing any interest in what you and what God has to offer? It's not fair. And they're right. It's not fair. Because mercy is not fair. Mercy doesn't keep score. Mercy can't be earned. Mercy is absurd. It's hard to understand for those of us who like to keep score or who struggle when others get celebrated for not putting in the same effort that we do. I mean, has anyone participated in a school project? Probably some of you all have. Um, when you're the one who's done kind of the heavy lifting and then you all get the same grade and it's like, what? But the kind of unfairness that's happening here is different because we're focusing on God's mercy and talking about what God's mercy is like. You and I, we have done nothing to earn it. And there's nothing we can do to earn more of it than the person sitting next to us or the person that we resent that's out there walking around in the world. God is extravagant with mercy, irrational with how it is bestowed. That can be hard to accept when we think, in, when we think about it being given to others that we don't think deserve it. But that's the gospel. 
That is good news. The depth and breadth of God's mercy is worth throwing the feast to end all feasts. It's by God's grace that we can turn towards the way of death, towards life. That we can be found after being lost for so long. And if we've already tasted just a little bit of that degree of mercy, just a little bit of that foretaste of abundant life, how much more should we be ready and willing to welcome others to the table? They aren't pushing us out of our seat. They're not taking away any of the mercy portion that is before us. God is extravagant with mercy. There is no limit to it. Is God's mercy fair? That's not really for us to be worried about, this parable seems to be pointing to. And if we get hung up there for too long, we're warned that we might become like that older son, prodigal in his own right, wasting this moment of joy and that celebrating something that really is pretty special. Now, being reminded of God's generous mercy, it doesn't fix everything, right? You're not going to walk out of here and magically all will be well in your life and in the world. But grounding ourselves in God's mercy, it does have the power to reorient us and to reframe our understanding. When we're grounded in that kind of mercy, we recognize that by God's grace, we are in fact enough, just as we are. And while that might be easy to say, when we really actually believe it and start to live like we believe it, we are transformed. Paul talks about this kind of transformation by saying, we become a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. And as this new creation, we start to be unwilling to live lives that are driven by fear, that are driven by scarcity, the kind of forces that fuel racism and greed and violence. And instead, we become fueled by a desire for equity and to respect the dignity of every human being. And maybe, just maybe, we let that mercy permeate out into our everyday interactions with people. So my invitation to you this week is to linger a little while with your relationship with God and with mercy. What might this parable be inviting you to consider? Are you lurking at the doorway of the banquet Maybe feeling a little resentful of what you see going inside, see going on inside, or maybe you were out there wondering if you are worthy of such a party, or if it's too late for you to join it. Maybe you haven't done enough to earn it. Well, I might suggest that a path into exploring your relationship with divine mercy might be just to look back at that hymn that we just sang, whose opening words say, there's a wideness to God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice which is more than liberty. And lest this remain just an intellectual or kind of a personal, private, devotional practice, I'm going to challenge you to take it a step further. How might trusting and reveling in God's mercy impact how you live? How can you let it reframe your words and your actions today? Maybe this ancient story, maybe it's not done with you yet. It hints at a kind of mercy that is cause for celebration and cause for deep delight. 
not just for ourselves, but for the ways that it can bring everyone back to life. If we really know this story by heart, then we have to live like we believe it. Amen.